All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, Dan and I are going to be joined by Alex Nislobin and Jason Milionis to be diving deep into the world of loss versus rebalancing, also known as Lever or LVR. Before we get into the nitty gritty of what exactly Lever is, which I'm sure many of you will already be familiar with, is the why we decided to do this. So AMMs have been a remarkable innovation in the world of DeFi, but one of the big problems that they've suffered from is how to make LPs profitable, how to calculate that profitability, but also how to make especially retail passive LPs, profitable. The the very first idea of how to quantify that was this idea of impermanent loss, which many of you will be familiar with, but that has evolved to Lever. So we're going to get into how exactly we should define Lever and what are some of the solutions for Lever today, namely dynamic fees and auctions. This was an extremely illuminating and fun episode. I hope you all enjoy. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Uh, today, Dan and I are joined by Alex Nislobin and Jason Milianos. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. We're excited, guys. And just to set the scene for the audience and listeners, we're going to be diving into one of the thorniest and most complicated, but simultaneously most interesting and I think critical areas of crypto today, which is LVR and LP profitability. So I want to I want to do our best to deconstruct in as simple language as we can for for listeners what LVR is and why it's important. And then I want to spend the meat uh, of the conversation getting into some of the proposed solutions for LVR, which I think are super interesting and um, and worth spending time on. So before we get into it, I'll just open up the floor, uh, Alex and Jason. Could you guys give us a definition of LVR? Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess, um, you know, there's, from what I see, there's many angles to it. There's many interpretations of this that um, correspond to like several equivalent definitions. I think our paper, so actually gives like all five equivalent definitions, but you know, if you want to analyze all of them, it could take a whole episode of the series to do that. So I think the intuitive idea behind Lever is that essentially it's the price of knowledge. So whenever the price of an asset moves in, in an external market, say, if trades on, on Coinbase, uh, the AMM does not know if it's um, the updated price, like it's behind. So essentially what the AMM does is that it offers liquidity at stale prices. And the thing is that somebody else, and these people are called arbitrageurs, they do know the latest price and the AMM will trade with them at worse than market prices. So basically the LPs of the AMM lose exactly because of the informational disadvantage that um, the prices of the AMM puts them into. So I think that's my, my intuition around it. But, you know, more, more formally, I guess, as a computer scientist, the formulation that sticks to me the most is, is the comparison with alternative strategies that the LP could have done instead of um, LPing at the AMM. And so I think that's also the view with impermanent loss, but I guess we can discuss that a bit later. I love the first definition. I think from my perspective, LVR is essentially a transaction cost, yet another transaction cost that is imposed uh, on LPs. Um, If you are a passive LPs and you want to make money by making the market, then um, you can um, contribute some amounts to the protocol of one token of another token. 
And then there is a wide range of outcomes, what can happen in the future. The price can go up, in which case the permanent loss is probably going to be high and um, this may not be the best outcome. The price can go down, in which case um, the outcome is also probably not going to be very good for LP. So maybe the price will fluctuate around the same value, in which case uh, it's great for LPs, the LP will be making money. Um, one issue, however, is that when you contribute money, you should be thinking about what is going to happen in expectation. And if you take a step back and think about a world without any transaction cost, then there is uh, a theorem in finance, there is a theorem in statistics as well, saying that if you believe that prices follow something like a random walk, then you cannot redetime it. So basically all these strategies, I will buy now, I will sell later if the price goes to some uh, higher uh, number, they in expectation don't really generate value unless you have some what people call alpha about the price. So if you just think that the price follows a random walk, then there's a wide range of outcomes where you make money in some, you lose money in some others, but on average, that's a fair game. And what makes this game a little bit unfair is the LVR. Because every time the MM quotes a price, the price is a little bit stale. And so the MM ends up trading at a price, end up buying at a price that is a little too high, end up selling at a price that is a little too low. And over time, this little transaction cost accumulates. And so that makes the game unfair to the LPs. Um, so that's my idea of uh, LVR. I, I really like both of those definitions. And maybe to sum it up and pull out some of the key concepts, there's, I love this idea, Jason, of the price of knowledge. And then there's also an idea of information asymmetry. So if you imagine a world where price was a martingale, right, which means prices are basically a random walk and there is no directional alpha and everyone is trading on one venue, there would be no LVR. However, we're not living in that world. We're living in a world where price is discovered on one venue and then it adjusts to other venues. And that discrepancy in terms of timing and knowledge generally leads to the concept of LVR. And this idea of expected idea of profit as opposed to realized uh, profit is another very important one. We could get into the, the weeds of how this works in the world of traditional market making, which is probably the best analog for talking about LP profitability, but it's also one that's a relevant problem for businesses as well, right? So folks will be familiar with the concept of a P&L balance sheet cash flow is it tells you different parts about the profitability and viability of a business, right? So to ask a very simple question for a regular business, you know, you might say, how profitable is this business? Well, how much money did you start with and how much did you end with? But actually, once you get into the weeds, it's not really that simple because let's say you're building a factory, you might actually have a huge outlay of cash flow in the, you know, at one period of time. But what you're trying to do with the PL is get an expectation of profitability over a certain period. And there's a similar concept, I think, to be applied to LVR. And what makes it so difficult, I think, I actually heard Doug Colkett, who we're going to be hearing from on our next episode, he he mentioned that probably this this isn't even a lot of people aren't even aware of this issue because you might be, if you're not a particularly sophisticated LP, LPing along, you might be making money, but you might be losing money in expectation from LVR, which just makes it a very devious problem. So 
that's that's the way that I would sort of sum it up. And and you guys give really great helpful definitions there. And I want I want to turn it over to Dan in a minute to get into some of the solutions. But Alex, I, I heard you lay out a great um, in, in terms of solving the information asymmetry part of this. You said that information sort of flows from three separate sources. You have to consider the source of the flow. You have to consider information that's going on in the world. And you have to consider order flow. So maybe if you could lay out those three sources of information, and then we can transition into the categories of solutions for mitigating LVR, which would be auctions and dynamic fees. But turn it over to you to talk about sources of information for pricing. I didn't mean the list, uh, the list to be exhaustive. So I think that there might be some other th- sources that uh, I might be, we might be overlooking. Um, in general, as a you know, mechanism designers might be overlooking, but I think that these three sources are sort of the most natural ones. So basically, when you think about pricing your liquidity, where should it be positioned? Where should the best best bid be? Where should the best ask be? How much liquidity do I want to provide at these best bid and ask prices? You should uh, take into account pretty much all the information that you have. But primarily, if you talk to traditional market makers, it will come from several sources, right? So they will be monitoring other exchanges very closely, what is happening elsewhere, the information about the outside world. They will be monitoring the news. So this is what, this is one very important piece of information, obviously. The second source of information is just the flow that they observe. And the finance literature, the academic literature has done a lot of work on this. And of course, in practice, people um, uh, use that a lot too. So if you see that for some reason you are putting your limit orders on the book and they're getting, uh, and somebody's taking them way too eagerly, then there is a chance that you they might know something that you don't, in which case you should start taking some defensive action. So even without any outside information about the outside world, you should be learning from the order flow that you observe. And finally, if you have any information about the particular incoming order that you can use, then of course that should be used as well. Um, Almost any market maker would price an order coming from Robinhood differently from an order coming from a traditional exchange, right? So that's, those are two di- very different sources of uh, order flow for them. Um, and uh, basically, uh, in uh, in the context of DeFi, if we had more information about the transaction, where it's coming from, was it observed in the public mempool or is it coming only through the private mempool? Um, everything that you can imagine, you could learn about the transaction might be helpful in pricing liquidity for it. So that those are the three sources, but maybe there is something else. Hey everyone, wanted to take a quick second to shout out this season's partner, Maverick Protocol. Now, many of you probably know Maverick as an innovative AMM, which they are, but in reality, they're a lot more than that as well. Maverick is a suite of tools for DeFi users and builders that allows them to put liquidity where it will get the most work done. Since Maverick launched in March, they have been gobbling up market share and At the time of this recording, which is the end of September, on a trailing seven-day volume basis, 
Maverick is now a top three dex by volume, and they support over 50% of the volume on the L2 ZK Sync era chain. Maverick enables LPs and token pairs to process higher volume with limited TVL, which allows them to support some of the highest levels of capital efficiency for LSTs like Rapsteef. Another very cool feature is something called Maverick Boosted Positions. So that allows protocols looking to bootstrap their token liquidity to target the shape of liquidity of any token pair with surgical precision. Maverick is backed by some of the leading institutions in crypto, Founders Fund, Pantera, Coinbase Ventures, Finance Lab. They are all backing Maverick in their vision to revolutionize the next generation of DeFi dApps and helping them build their liquidity in all market conditions. Click the link at the bottom of this episode let them know that I sent you. Thanks, guys. The example of Robinhood is is a really good one. And the reason why makers would actually be able to provide better, uh, quote, tighter spreads is because they're not worried about getting run over, right? So this is a concept they'll be very familiar with sort of TradFi market makers, which is if you're making a market for Goldman Sachs and Goldman Sachs places a huge sell order, there's a good chance that Goldman Sachs knows something that you don't and you might lose money on making that making markets for that particular trade. Whereas Robinhood, the reason that order flow is so valuable, right, is because it's what you would call dumb, dumb order flow. I wonder how long that's going to be a thing after the movie Dumb Money is out. <laughs> now everyone knows that it's called that, but it's dumb order flow. And as a maker, you're not particularly worried about getting run over. So you can actually quote better, tighter spreads. So maybe Dan, I could turn it over to you here and start to ask these guys about um, what, what are some of the solutions for, for LBR here? I know in the past, uh, you've been more on the the sort of auction side of things. Now you've you've lost a lot of that religion and are looking at kind of dynamic fees and, and oracles as well. But uh, be curious, like kind of introduce this concept of these two different um, or the different categories that people have for for uh, solving or, or helping to mitigate LVR. Yeah, and yeah. So I, and I think what what we just talked about is a great lead into that. And just before I do, I would say I I consider myself mostly agnostic on the on the concept of how to reduce. Um, loss residue rebalancing. It is a project that I think makes sense as a project. And I think we talked about this a little in our last episode, but uh, one of the things I loved about Jason's lever paper is that it really crystallized for me this as a, as a meaningful research direction. Um, and when you like zoom in into the micro of basically what's happening in every block, it makes a lot of sense. Whereas up until the lever paper came out, a lot of people I think had been framing this as how do we reduce impermanent loss, which to me is all, it's almost an incoherent concept for a market maker to, to, the idea that a market maker could make markets without having some risk of the market going going away from them and being and being run over, um, but I think with lever, it's it's specifically t- talking about the part of the risk that can't that can't be hedged, um, and that generally comes from these from these sort of short term, uh, generally short term uh, uh, informational disadvantages. Um, and one more thing for I think uh, when talking about these, I do think lever is very different in uh, or the the concept applies very differently if we were talking about say like a longer tail. Um, token that so maybe one that's only traded on this particular um, exchange. I do think it's still a meaningful concept potentially there, but I think when people talk about solutions to lever, we're often talking about it in the in the context of um, of highly liquid tokens with uh, with a lot of price discovery, especially a lot of off chain price discovery, where it becomes it's slightly easier to measure. And I think possibly a, a, the concept means I think a slightly different thing in that context. Um, I don't know. Would, would Alex and, and Jason would, would you agree with that as as maybe the the main um, or maybe that's that's sort of a more meaningful thing to limit our discussion to is about the the shorter tail of tokens. Yeah, I think that sounds just about right. It's just that um, I think that when you have price discovery also happen on chain, it's more an unknown as to 
how this price discovery is going to reverse affect these um, external markets where you uh, previously assumed that you have price discovery. So for something like, let's say, ETH, we can safely assume that, you know, since, um, I don't know, 78% of the order flow is essentially on centralized exchanges, um, basically the price discovery happens on these exchanges. Uh, once on something else, you have um, AMM be uh, the dominant part of the order flow, then you can't essentially um, perfectly uh, distinguish as to what is the, the quantity that you're losing due to adverse selection, which is basically what that lever represents. So I think that poses um, you know, a difficulty that I think it's, it's a very interesting research direction and definitely one that I like thinking about, but I don't think we've um, certainly crystallized to this point as to um, what's the um, right way to think about price discovery on chain. I agree. I think that there are certainly different market segments uh, in uh, in this debate, and I think they, they should be uh, addressed uh, separately. Uh, deep liquidity major tokens would be one, and of course we probably have the expectation that price discovery is happening elsewhere. Then uh, stable coins uh, would be a different example, and we may not worry about LVR for stable coins too much, but there is still... Uh, a related problem: How do you make um, LPing in this particular market even more profitable? Can we can we make it even more profitable? Uh, then there are assets uh, that people call long tail assets. Uh, the market there is obviously very different, so some of the ideas may carry over, but not necessarily everything. And uh, then there are others, some there are some other interesting markets as well. But I think the big one should probably be. Uh, the major tokens for now. And then one more question on this is, do you feel like markouts might actually be a better uh, uh, metric for measuring this with longer tail tokens? Like does, does loss versus rebalancing maybe mean a little less as a concept in the, in the longer, with the longer tail? And we didn't really talk about markouts as maybe the, an alternative way to uh, talk about this, but is that, is that maybe a, a weakness in the, in the lever frame if you're actually talking about a token where, the, where price discovery is happening on the same exchange? So I don't, personally, I don't think it kind of is because if you, there's this basically um, theorem that if you take markouts and um, you take the time interval um, go to zero as to how you measure your markout, then that essentially is going to be exactly lever. So, you know, what, what markouts are essentially doing, and it might not be obvious at first glance, but I think that's, um, that's the case, is essentially that um, they try to interpolate between lever and impermanent loss. So if you have a markout with like, um, a huge time horizon, then that's ex ex exactly equal to impermanent loss. Whereas if you have a markout with a time interval that goes to zero, then that goes exactly to um, to lever, basically. So I'm not sure as to um, what the benefit is if you have an intermediate time interval. Uh, maybe Alex can speak more to that. But I think that in the two edge cases, it's kind of relatively clear what, what markout corresponds to. So I don't think there's a meaningful difference in that direction. Yes, I think there is this traditional debate on how long the markout period should be. If you take it all the way to zero, if you somehow know the fair value of the token at the time when the transaction is made, then to me, it's almost the same thing. Markout or LVR, there's almost no difference between the two. It's literally the same yeah. thing, isn't it? It's, it's literally the same thing, yes. Yeah, so I... I I wanted to hedge my bets a little bit because uh, Jason has a special interpretation of fees, but we, we we may not want to go there right now. So let's let's call it the same thing. 
But then uh, the issue is that uh, uh, liquidity providers, they like to provide liquidity to uninformed flow. And when uh, there is somebody buying in size, then there is a chance that uh, they're buying on multiple venues at the same time. So there is always a question that uh, when you use the price from centralized exchanges or from some other venue or some weighted average price or maybe the global price, uh, the mid of the best bid and offer everywhere, is that price biased relative to the fair value because of the temporary pressure on the price that the uninformed flow creates everywhere? And so the traditional thinking is that we should allow for some period of time to make sure that uh, if there is some uninformed flow going on right now, that it dissipates. We, we need to give it some time to dissipate. There will be some other uninformed flow later, of course, but uh, we don't know in which direction it will be. So the trade-off in choosing the markout period is that the longer the markout period, the uh, less bias you should expect to see in your markout but this lesser bias comes at a cost of higher noise because you're just giving some more time for the price to walk away in each direction. You don't know in which direction it will go, so there is no bias, but there will be noise. So basically, there is this trade-off, which uh, brings me back to Dan's question. Uh, would that be an appropriate metric for uh, long-tail assets? For long-tail assets, you don't necessarily have a good price from centralized exchanges even 15 seconds later because there's simply no good price. And so the question is, at what time period can you expect the price on the DEX, on the same DEX that we are talking about today, to be unbiased and uh, for the, all the uninformed flow to dissipate? And so I don't want to go into uh, much detail on the mechanics uh, of uh, how Uniswap pools work. But basically, since Uniswap pools can only be moved by takers of liquidity, it takes a little bit longer for the mid-price on Uniswap to sort of reflect the average true price. So it basically takes a little bit longer for uninformed flows to dissipate. So basically, you do have to take longer markouts. I think that the, the approach still works. You just might need to give it a little bit more time and use longer markouts if you are talking about long-tail uh, long assets. Cool. So I, I did want to ask, um, uh, get into some discussion about uh, solutions and possible families of solutions to, to loss risk. I think maybe before we go there, can I interject a little bit? Um, I think sure. what Alex said um, gives me a kickback to discuss something else that also came back a bit um, earlier. And that's like, I think we should make clear that like the term like noise traders or uninformed uh, order flow it's not a diminutive term. I, I don't think it's meant to say that these people are, are dumb or being taken advantage of. And actually think on top, this is actually wrong. And that's because um, what it solely means is that uh, uninformed order flow does not have a short-term edge, so immediate market information. Long-term, I think that uninformed order flow is actually exactly what, um, what moves an efficient market. Uh, it's basically the purpose of any efficient market to um, uncover and aggregate this long-term information. So I think that the distinguishing bit be, um, between arbitrage flow and uninformed flow is essentially whether you do have or you don't have short-term uh, market information for the next, let's say, second or millisecond. And I think that's actually what um, what constitutes the 
um, impetus for essentially having markouts with different time periods. And actually, just just one interjection there for folks who aren't aware of a markout. A markout is, again, one of these ways that more traditional market makers or high-frequency traders use to measure expected profitability, right? So if you're a high-frequency trader, you're placing many, even sometimes hundreds of thousands of trades per day. You want to get a sense of, hey, am I placing, am I placing these trades in a way that I'm getting good execution and is my strategy profitable? And sometimes the period that you actually hold your trades doesn't measure up to the sort of expected alpha timeline that you have. So again, you'll sort of take a, a period of time, you'll place the trade and say, after five seconds, I'm going to measure whether or not this was a good trade. So just to, I just realized we haven't defined what a markout is. So just to set the scene, it's it's another one of these sort of expected measures of profitability that high frequency traders or market makers will use. And I think, Jason, I think that's a great point, because I do think when you hear people talking about uninformed traders, um, you might think, right, that the market makers are scheming about basically how to take advantage of them. But in fact, the brutal competition generally among professional market makers is people competing to give the best possible execution to uninformed traders and just try, trying to avoid, trying to take advantage of or avoid being taken advantage of by, the, by informed traders. But generally, knowing that flow is uninformed is a reason to give it better execution uh, traditionally. Um, and that's, that's, again, I think, uh, an, interesting, an interesting property of the how these markets work. There's there's a great there's a great I'm going to blank on his name. I will find it and link it in the show notes for people who want to take a look at this but this guy named Patrick something. I will I will link this who wrote a great uh sort of treatise on payment for order flow and how it works in traditional markets and why people have it exactly backwards and actually most of the time retail gets better pricing than institutions. Um but we'll we'll link that in the show notes if some nerds want to go down the rabbit hole of payment for order flow. I think that does, that leads pretty nicely into our um, next topic, talking about solutions to um, uh, poss possible mitigations for loss versus rebalancing. And I think maybe if we start with thinking about dynamic fees um, or what, what, what they've been called, um, Alex, you want to describe this general family of solutions? I, I think that LPs talk a, a lot about fees. Uh, when I think about fees, I mostly think about the uh, Bidask spread. Uh, because this is what fees do in an AMM. In an AMM essentially, you have the mid price, which is the MM price. And uh, since you have to pay the fee when you buy and when you sell, then the best bid and ask prices that the AMM essentially offers are different. And for a market maker, determining how to best position the spread is a, a, probably one of the most important exercises. You do have to make other decisions as well. You will probably want to be present at many levels. But the best levels, the, bed, the best bid and ask, play the most important role in trading. If you look at traditional markets, most trading happens exclusively at the best bid and ask ticks. So essentially, not much is happening uh, deeper inside the book. Deeper inside the book, you're just competing for priority. You don't have to compete for priority in AMM because it's uh, uh, pro rata, essentially. Uh, so there is no competition, really. But what the AMM can do you can try to come up with a better ways to position your bid ask spread. And so when you start thinking about this better ways to position the bid ask spread, you have to ask the following question. What if I had perfect information? How would I want to position my bid ask spread? What if somebody told me that the fair value of the asset is X? And you can immediately say that, well, if the fair value is X, then you probably want to center your spread around that X. And if you look a little bit more closely at what happens in actual AMMs, 
uh, it's not necessarily what's going to happen. So one observation, for example, is that since uh, the spread is only moved by takers of liquidity in a traditional MM, is that uh, if you have an arbitrage transaction, it will move the best ask price to the fair value of the asset. But then for the next block, the spread will stay, it will not be centered relative to the fair value of the asset, but the fair value will be at one side of the spread, which is not great because you have liquidity that is overexposed on one side and you have liquidity that is pretty far away on the other side. You always want to be somewhere in the middle. This is just one example, but I think that there are many ways that you can think about how to position the spread. And actually, Unity 4 gives quite a bit of flexibility because you can come up with your custom fee mechanisms um, for um, different pools. You can write a hook that uh, um, basically uh, uh, governs the fee for a particular trade. And uh, with uh, by changing the fee, you can basically adjust the BDASK spread for each individual trade in theory. And now basically you just want to use as much information as you can gather to position the spread optimally. Yeah, so I think an important thing here is that the, the fee happens to be the mechanic when we're talking about AMMs that you're using to reposition the spread. But really what you're doing is you're changing, you're changing the spread and you're changing potentially the price, the midpoint price that you're using. And when you're thinking about how to change that price, you could be using any of the signals that Alex was talking about earlier. You could be basing it on, on recent activity. You could be basing it on off-chain information like the prices on other exchanges. And you could even be basing it on the characteristics and the source of that, of that particular volume. Um, and so that's where, that's where some of the discrimination, um, uh, order discrimination might, uh, might come in. Now, why, when we talk about AMMs, are we always, or at least you and I, tend to be talking about adjusting the fees rather than adjusting just the price? I think Alex and I are very are, are have have strong feelings on this, but I've seen I've seen others try to build AMMs that that try to adjust the price based on based on off-chain information. So I think the nice thing about uh, the underlying algorithm, why you may not want to change the price too quickly, is that it does provide certain guarantees to liquidity providers, in particular the passive liquidity providers. That basically I know that if I contributed my liquidity in a certain range. And I know that the price moved within that range or maybe even outside that range, but for every price move, I can bound my losses. So my losses are essentially bounded depending on how far the price moves relative to where it started. And uh, that bound on the losses, the upper bound on the losses, comes specifically from the MM mechanism. If you start changing the price altogether, changing the mid price without any constraint. So basically, instead of just changing fees, you say, all right, I'm going to move the price. And you can also start doing other things. You can concentrate liquidity more and do all those things. It's great if it works. So if you have a very good solution for LVR, it's great. But the issue is that if you are leaking value to arbitragers, then you can significantly increase the losses and there will be simply no upper bound on your losses. You can imagine a situation where the price moves somewhere, you reposition all of your liquidity there, you sold completely all of your inventory of one token and then you know that the price was wrong. Uh, and uh, your losses are basically, your losses can be everything. So 
Um, I think that uh, having some constraints, meaning that you 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 can adjust the spread around the price, but you actually have to, an arbitrager has to do some real work to move the price, create some uh, guarantees on the uh, maximum amount of losses that LPs can uh, encounter. Yeah. And I, I tend to think this is particularly uh... Uh, nice combination with how Uniswap V4 works because um, if you are just adjusting the fees, you can't make fees negative on on Uniswap V4, which is which is nice. Which means that you know you can do whatever you want to fees during the swap, and liquidity but liquidity providers will still ultimately who are providing a particular hook, they'll know that they can still get uh, that their bound, their losses will be bounded, assuming you don't have any any hooks that can that can that operate on on liquidity when it's being burned. Um, and so I think there's there's a nice property there where we could have more experimentation with fees in Uniswap before um, and have liquidity providers be able to provide to that while knowing that their losses would still be bounded, which I think is, is an interesting combination there. Now, th- what limitation does that does that come from? Like, what's sort of the downside of doing th- trying to do things entirely with dynamic fees? So I think if if um, if I can speak to that a bit, I think what I consider the most significant drawback of uh, many approaches that are related to dynamically setting fees um, is that in general, um, you could have, let's say, an AMM with a fee of 100% of the trade, right? Like that would be perfect. It has no arbitrage, no losses to LPs. But what do we achieve with that? We achieved absolutely nothing because now nobody, no real person is going to trade with this AMM. So there's actually a trade-off between minimizing the losses to LPs um, and actually having a meaningful order flow that we need to think carefully about. And so similarly, um, dynamic fees are also a friction for the uninformed flow. And so this will kind of lead the AMM to have um, lower income besides just lowering the losses from arbitrage. So what you're basically trading off here is how much the LPs are losing versus how up-to-date the price of the AMM are with respect to, to the market and subsequently uh, the gain in fees from from the uninformed order flow. So I think that's that's one of the considerations that we need to uh, think about when we consider um, dynamic fees as a as a solution to lever. Maybe you know minimizing lever is not your your only objective. It's actually maximizing the income to the liquidity providers that is your objective. Alex, you agree with that? Wholeheartedly, I agree with this one hundred percent. Uh, there are easy solutions to LVR that uh, people we, we didn't we don't mention because we know about them, right? But uh, there are solutions. You can charge a very high fee to everybody, so essentially you are not making markets. Then uh, there is no LVR. You can reduce block times if you could. Um, this reduces LVR as well. You could reduce fixed transaction costs, which is a very very important component of that, and that reduces LVR. So there are all these solutions. When you think about charging different fees, you have to, you absolutely have to find a mechanism that helps discriminate between arbitrage and uninformed flow at first. So the idea is that on average, an uninformed trader should face the same spread, whereas the arbitrager should on average pay more. And so only when you have some good ideas on how to discriminate the two flows only then you should be raising the fee. Otherwise, you can still raise the fee. There is no problem with that. But uh, you are reducing LVR at the cost of also having a lower uninformed flow. And so that's that's that may be a solution, but uh, it's, it's not necessarily something that is super exciting. We would like to lower the LVR, holding the spread faced by uninformed traders unchanged. 
I have a I have a quick question, guys. Is is are these are dynamic fees? One thing that I'm thinking about listening to this is, all right, this makes really good sense, right? One of the things that Dan and I are thinking about is like when you scale a DEX, you can't just totally favor LPs. You can't totally favor swappers. You kind of have to gradually sort of in a step-step kind of way make the experience better for both of them. And there's a positive flywheel that starts to kick in. So one of the things I'm finding myself wondering here is, are dynamic fees something that only a market leader like Uniswap could really implement? Because I'm imagining like a DEX, you know, like kind of the nth DEX after something like Uniswap, where there's not a whole lot of liquidity saying, hey, you know, with very well intentions, you know, my LPs are an important stakeholder within my ecosystem and I'm going to start charging toxic flow for like more discriminate. I'm discriminating, basically doing price discrimination against toxic flow. But in that world, if you make up a very small percentage of volume and liquidity and Uniswap, for instance, is not doing that then I would imagine all of that liquidity or all of that trading just flows to Uniswap. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? Like I'm, does it, do you have to kind of implement this from the position of a market leader? Like would Uniswap have to move first here and sort of set the precedent or would this be available for anyone to just implement right now and you think they would see positive results? Are you talking about all of the toxic flow will flow to Uniswap? If, if this is a working discrimination, order discrimination method, right? Then like, Ideally, it should only be punishing people who are informed traders. And generally, as, as a rule, you don't want informed traders. Basically, your, your liquidity providers don't want informed volume on your, um, on your decks, right? I agree. I guess maybe what I didn't articulate there is I wonder what percentage of volume today is actually toxic versus retail order flow. I, I do, all of the people on this call would probably have a much better idea than, than me. I would guess it's majority toxic probably these days. Um, so uh, on the one hand, it's like we don't want that volume, but then I could imagine implementing some sort of discriminatory pricing scheme against the toxic volume and then your volume falls by 80%. Yeah. You're like, wait, 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 <laughs> wait, 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 uh, come come back. Uh, I'm not going to discriminate that much. So do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like we, I could yeah. see- we, we talked about this a little bit, a little bit, I think, in our last episode. Um, but I do think, I, I'll, I'll put it slightly differently in that I think this, this is something that maybe only Uniswap only a market leader could have the courage to do, which is to basically sacrifice what a lot of what looks like volume, but is in fact something that you don't want. Um, and say like, we're going to, we're going to give up, we're going to give up this, this vanity stat um, in favor of actually better returns and, and, and a better offering for liquidity providers. I think, I think that, I think that is potentially true in that, in that if you want to actually make a mark as a new, as a new decentralized exchange, I've seen a lot of decentralized exchanges that get very, they get a lot of attention because they have a ton of volume. This happens a lot with like uh, VAMM perps, these types of, of uh, DEXs that are designed like terribly um, and that lose money on every trade, every trade and that don't have no bounds on the amount of losses, et cetera. And they get insane amounts of volume when they launch. They get so much volume that like they have to shut down um, because they've lost all their money. And I think that can be a good marketing um, strategy for a new DEX to kind of to burst onto the scene. Whereas, right, when, I, I think it might be harder to get attention as like, we're getting no volume, but it's, you know, we're, we're, it's all bad volume that we, that we got rid of. I think that might be a harder sell. Whereas I think, again, someone, someone like Unison might have a little bit more um, be in a more of a position to, to make that long-term choice that you actually don't want this volume. I don't know if, if Alex and Jason have thoughts on that. I don't know. I think, I think to what Mike said, I, I wouldn't say so um, because essentially by discriminating for um, toxic order flow and by um, kind of having a better fee income stream from uninformed flow and maybe providing better execution to them as well, essentially what arises in this nth dex, as you said, 
um, is essentially that you have competitive pressure for liquidity providers. So essentially, you have liquidity providers being better off in this nth dex than in the um, dominant, essentially, um, dex. So I think gradually, because of this competitive pressure for LPs, what you'll see is that you'll see that if, if this nth dex achieves um, better um, better price discrimination, both arbitrageurs and um, essentially uninformed flow, you'll see the nth dex will become n minus one, and then it will become n minus two, and then it'll start dominating because exactly the LPs will, will start leaking from uh, from the leading dex to this uh, this nth dex exactly because um, competitively it's better for them uh, to be. Uh, there than the first one. Uh, Jason, I'm actually going to push back on your pushback there. Um, uh-huh. And I think the thing that might be worth debating here is the idea that all LPs are behaving perfectly rationally. And I think there's pretty demonstrable evidence that that's not necessarily the case. Or there are broader strategic implications that LPs are thinking about beyond just the profitability that I'm making today. So the big question that a lot of people are curious about um, in LP land is who are these big uni v3 LPs? Dan, I've heard you muse and question about that. And we've talked a little bit about who, who are these people who have been pretty empirically demonstrated to be losing money. And it's it's another uncertain, uncertain pools, uncertain, pools. right? Uncertain pools. But another but but an additional layer of paradox or irony is that actually more active LPs are are the, these these larger LPs tend to be more active and that makes them lose even more money, gas costs, things like that. But I, I like your explanation, Dan, which is that basically, like there are a couple big pools on Uniswap. If you're not an LP or active in these pools, then you're basically just out of the game, right? So even you might lose money for a specific period of time. And if you're a very large, sophisticated, well-funded entity that's taking a concentrated bet, you might be okay losing money for years. As an upstart DEX, you don't have years to demonstrate traction. That, so that, that would be the only pushback. That would be the only pushback that I would... So. Yeah, I, I think another way to put it is you do need to bootstrap retail volume in, um, in order to, you know, to get at, to have any returns above, um, uh, any returns basically at all in expectation. And so that happens right now to be on Uniswap. And so in order to, if LPs move to somewhere that just like happens to perfectly set their fees correctly, but they don't get any retail volume, um, then, then I think it won't really work. I do think, again, I think the more efficient routing gets, the, the, hopefully the, the better, um, the more competitive that gets. And again, I think part of the idea of, we talked about this uh, last time about of Uniswap X and Uniswap V4 in combination is to try to make that make it easy to route volume to new uh, to new more competitive uh, models for for decentralized exchange provision. Um, Alex, I, yeah, I think that uh, this is a very this is a great question. Uh, people talk a lot about discriminating different groups of traders, informed versus uninformed. But also need to think about the different interests of uh, LPs. Yes, we use the same word for them. We just call them LPs, and we don't really look at uh, the incentives, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and I think that this is absolutely a critical component in all of this. So let's say that I gave you an optimal oracle price. You can rely on it 100%. Then you can build a great DEX around it. You can position all of your liquidity right around that price, offer it without slippage, and maybe just charge the lowest fee possible on both sides. Then you will get... Uh, only the uninformed flow. There will be zero arbitrage flow because you're always pr- pricing around the correct price. And it looks like uh, you're doing great. You may not be showing as much volume as some other exchanges, but all of your volume is great. Are we done? Is this mission accomplished? And I don't think that the answer to this is yes. Because uh, there are LPs who are actually willing to lose a little bit of money for some useful service that they get, namely directional execution. With an 
algorithm like the one that I described before, where you position everything around the optimal price, it's very difficult to direct to execute a trade directionally by being a liquidity maker. And uh, in traditional markets, I have not seen a great estimate of the number. All of the estimates seem to be a little bit hand wavy. But uh, people say that 60% of liquidity comes from about 60% of liquidity can be coming from people who trade directionally. If you lose, let's say, three basis points on each trade as an LP, it's horrible if you want to be in the market making business because you lose essentially three basis points and expectation on every trade. But if you want to trade directionally, three basis points is great execution. Uh, this is why Univ3 is actually a big improvement over Univ2 because people could start trading directionally with short range liquidity position. And they are willing to position their liquidity very close to the mid, uh, to the true price or maybe even cross the spread a little bit and uh, position it sort of on the other side uh, to get that directional execution. So I think that uh, strategically, protocols should start thinking about uh, having these different groups of LPs. Some are interested in passive market making. Some actually want to get something out of it. And those who want to get directional execution out of it, they should be willing to pay a little bit more and they should be fine with some losses. I looked at some of these large trades that happened recently. Vitalik had a famous one, not uh, not a long time <laughs> really? ago. Yeah, well, it was it wasn't a very huge one, but it was 600k something. So he was selling Maker. I'm not sure if he was aiming for high price impact in that particular case because he was not selling uh, uh, out of uh, you know there were different speculations for why he was doing that. But uh, I looked at the execution cost, and it's pretty high. According to my back-of-the-envelope calculation, it was maybe something to the tune of 30, 40 basis points. Uh, he could have executed better, I think, with short-range LP positions, potentially. Um, so that's why I think that it's not necessarily uh, uh, it's not necessarily just about offering liquidity to uninformed flow. It's also about offering a way for people to trade directionally with liquidity positions. And just just to highlight for listeners who this might not be you know as common knowledge, I think zero FBI femboy was the first one who wrote a post about this, where basically people were actually providing extremely uh, on on like Uni V three where you can do concentrated liquidity across an extremely tight range that was very close to the current price in hopes that essentially the price would cross the spread and that they would basically be getting paid a very small amount to make the trade. So is your point there, Alex? Basically that those people, you should be able to charge them less or even uh, even, even a small fee for doing that. And that would still be cheaper than the execution they would get on another venue. And that's something that would make sense. Yes, I think that uh, people should be, they, they're probably fine with small losses, right? So if you maybe lost five, 10 basis points on this, but you managed to trade directionally in the direction that you like, and you didn't have to pay 60 basis points in an RFQ, then that's a good outcome still. Again, in traditional markets, most people try to, most large institutions try to uh, execute directionally as makers, not as takers of liquidity. They end up being takers sometimes because they throw in a limit order and it turns out that it's a marketable limit order. So it actually is, uh, it, it, would, it, it falls on the other side of the book when it lands. Uh, so that happens, but they generally try not to take liquidity when they can avoid it. 
And I think that this is uh, this is something that uh, the DEXs might want to work, sort of might focus on as well, uh, to offer better execution this way. I know we're we're winding down here or getting to the um, uh, sort of tail end of the interview here. And I, I want to bring up the, so we've been talking a lot about dynamic pricing as one potential solution for LVR. So how do we identify uh, uninformed, uninformed versus informed order flow and maybe have diff- a differential pricing strategy for each of those two different groups? But there's another maybe family of solutions, which would sort of broadly fall within the category of, of auctions as a way for mitigating LVR. So... Uh, Alex, Alex, Dan, or Jason, whoever wants to take this, can you just kind of introduce the idea of auctions and how that might complement dynamic fees as a as a solution for mitigating or reducing LVR? I think my idea around auctions is that essentially their purpose is to um, try to take back lever from from the ARBs before or after they trade with the AMM. So basically, the idea is that there is um, this um, total amount on the table that is um, LVR. And you might not be able to reduce it straightforwardly, but you might be able to take it back from um, from the ARBs. And so auctions try to do exactly that. And so how do they try to do that? You try to organize a competitive market between all of the ARBs um, to do exactly that. And you have two um, ways of doing that. You could either um, do that um, just in time, basically as the trade occurs, or you could try to do that before. So auction out the right essentially to be um, the arbitrageur. Um, and so you pay some some amount of money in this auction in order to have some exclusive right that grants you our privileges, let's say. Yeah, and I think one advantage of auctions potentially over over dynamic fees, one is that you you may reduce the need for an off-chain, some kind of, of, of possibly trusted Oracle off-chain because you have, the, if, if you have this competitive process, um, to uh, for where, where basically anyone, you know, there's an incentive compatible mechanism um, in theory here for people to be competing to move the price to the, to the, uh, to the right price. The other potential advantage is you, you maybe lift some of the constraints you have on dynamic fees, right? With dynamic fees, you can only move so far off of the, um, uh, off of the current price um, and uh, you can't have negative, you can't have negative fees. On, uh, you had set like fees on, on your AMM to, to a negative value. So in, in some cases, you may not be able to adjust the price to the proper price. Um, I think with auctions, it's it's cleaner potentially to to actually have that rebalance happen at the at the new price because you had just like auction, explicitly auctioned off the right for anyone to trade against it. Um, so in theory, you should actually get uh, get that to clear. Um, Alex, you want to talk a little about some of the disadvantages of auctions? I think that auctions can be uh, a great idea, but there are a lot of details that would need to be very carefully implemented. And I, I, I think that some of these issues seem to be pretty tricky to me, but there is hope. I guess that's my overall assessment. But so so one of the first things is that when you when you're running an auction, I think it's a good idea to actually collect uh, uh money regardless of whether transaction lands on chain or if it or, or it doesn't and the reason why it's a good idea because if you don't then i can bid whatever i want and then at some point i can just decide hey i don't want the transaction right so you need some mechanism to make sure that bids, bids are actually respected and so one of the ways to do it is of course to collect some amount of money upfront but then there is a difficulty issue with this upfront collections how do you actually allocate them to lps you don't know exactly who is at risk 
Are those just the LPs in the current tick or are those the LPs in the other ticks? Is it just this particular pair or was the arbitrager trying to use this pair to arbitrage some other pair? So the allocation of this surplus becomes a pretty difficult problem. I know that there was a great proposal by um, by the CowSwap team that attracted a lot of attention called uh, MCMM, MACMM. And uh, in that particular proposal, I think that that problem turned out to be pretty difficult. So I think that there was one of the reasons maybe it was not implemented. There are the issues as well. So how do you make sure that when you sell the right to arbitrage to somebody, how do you make sure that they don't slow down things intentionally? We know from Jason's paper that LVR is high when blocks are slower. If I have the exclusive right to open the exchange to everybody, then I can artificially slow down the process. I can artificially increase the block time. And so on and so forth. And then finally, there is a question of how competitive these auctions really are. Because right now we see people competing in auctions, but when volatility is high, there is a grand total of one or two participants who can actually arbitrage a pool like EFUSDC on Uni V3. So it may not be as competitive uh, as it seems at the end. Again, I think that uh, there is hope here, but there are also quite a few problems to address. One thing that I think bears mentioning here, and the reason I mention it is because it ties into something Dan and I are looking at this whole season, which is how much value is leaking out of, call it the DEX ecosystem, and how can we stop some of that leakage? At least when I think about auctions, it's it's kind of a transfer of wealth away from Ethereum stakers, actually, and towards LPs. Because, you know, when you when there are arbitrageurs that are... Um, you know, we've been talking about arbitrageurs as if they're extracting all of the art, but they're not really because they ultimately have to participate in an auction which is run um, at the block space layer, which is MEV Boost today. And they end up surrendering a whole bunch of those profits back to the the stakers of Ethereum, who are, who are the real winners right now, right? So when I think about auctions, it's actually a way for, hey, how can we transfer through another auction the the, the excess profits here, right? To, to LPs of the of the decks instead of uh, basically paying the platform tax of Ethereum to stakers. So I don't know if you guys see that in a similar way or just wanted to make that observation. Yeah, I think it's a good question, actually, to whom this value should, um, should go. Like, yeah. um, there's many people that could go. It could go first, of course, um, to the arbitrageurs as it is. It could go back to the LPs. The, the argument could be made that since they're the ones that provide liquidity, it should be returned to them. It could also be that it should be returned to the users because these are um, the swappers, because these are the people who are using the AMM. And so, you know, these people should get better um, execution price or like um, higher quality of um, execution. And it could also, um, you know, there could also be the argument that could go to the block proposer as it's uh, defined because um, they have essentially the um, the right to um, do whatever they want in the block. And so they could just as easily exclude your uh, transactions from the block and provide you with no execution whatsoever. So I think there's um, a mix of um, situations that um, can occur. And actually, that's why, you know, that's why I like the um, lever as a, as a whole, uh, as the whole idea of... Um, capturing the entire value that could be distributed anywhere. And then where you want to distribute it might be something that could be more uh, fine-tuned. I view this trade-off between uh, LPs and um, uh, stakers 
as a bear market uh, zero sum game mentality. I don't really think that uh, uh, we should be thinking in those terms. Uh, everyone is going to be better off if we can come up with more efficient mechanisms to trade. And that's because when you start implementing more efficient mechanisms, people will be providing more liquidity. There will be more trading volume. And this is how you really build systems that uh, can compete with centralized finance and can just attract more volume. There is always this thing, hey, you know, brokers, they used to charge $5. That was great uh, for them, right? $5 a long time ago for transaction. I'm old enough to remember that. Uh, now they charge uh, a, maybe a point ten of a basis point on average relative to the true price. But I think they're happier now. And the reason they're happier now is because more people are willing to trade at that transaction cost. There is higher volume for everybody. Um, and so I think that in, in, in my world, there is really this trade-off is a sort of secondary or maybe even you know third thing to think about after you address the big ones. And uh, if you come up with a really efficient mechanism to trade, then this will be much more efficient for stakers as well, just because people will be doing more of that trading, uh, more of all of those activities that we uh, love uh, uh, Ethereum for. So I think I know we're maybe just to, to close here. One thing that we haven't taught, we've sort of danced around this, but not directly addressed it, which is why is this topic of loss first rebalancing so important? Because I think the the end state, um, Alex, I know you just sort of indirectly alluded to this, but at least my goal would be, I, I want decentralized finance to not only compete with, but eventually optimistic enough to say I wanted to surpass uh, surpass what gets done on traditional finance. And there's obviously a lot of room for improvement there. And LVR is a very important component, at least from from where I'm sitting. So for folks who are out there, because whenever you get into something as as technical as LVR, there's sort of a, oh, like it's these, these people arguing about very arcane stuff. But I view it as very, very fundamental to one of the core primitives of DeFi. So if we just, you know, just as like a high level takeaway for the audience, Alex and Jason, you guys have both dedicated an enormous amount of your your personal time and professional career towards exploring this issue. Why do you view it as something critical and worth spending time on? Leverage is essentially extremely important for DEX design, basically. Like you like you said, Mike, so I just want to um, echo this, basically. Um, I think uh, the upside is that no one is going to actually provide liquidity if, um, if they don't find it profitable to do so. And so this will eventually lead to there not being any DEXs any longer. So basically, um, that's the, um, the stakes of the game, basically, with, um, with Lever. And in order to essentially avoid this, this um, outcome that can be alleged to be bad, you need to build the incentive structure in such a way that you could um, avoid it. So I think you know, building an incentive structure such that you can avoid this situation of um, DEXs being inferior to um, centralized finance is exactly why um, the subject matter of Lever is, uh, is important to me. People sometimes think of trading as uh, speculation and uh, just games, but you can use a different term for it, right? It's a resource allocation. And uh, all of a sudden it sounds much nicer. And I think that this is why uh, trading is really one of the most important uh, activities in traditional finance. And it's going to be one of the most important activities in uh, DeFi as well. And uh if you cannot, uh, 
in my view, if you cannot solve some of these issues with inefficient trading, then everything else becomes a really sort of remote question, right? We can do other things on chain, of course, but uh, I think making trading more efficient and making com- coming up with mechanisms of more efficient resource allocation is probably uh, the number one most important point in all of it. So coming up with more efficient uh, mechanisms uh, on this particular topic, I think, is uh, very, very important. And uh, LVR right now is the biggest uh, inefficiency that's out there, I believe. So it's a very natural thing to study. I I wholeheartedly agree with both of those. And then I think, you know, for me, uh, getting as much crypto trading, at least as possible, uh, non-custodial is like my mission in life. But I think even more than that, I do think trading is essential for the security of the ch- having reducing lever is essential for the security of the chain, just because right now a lot of the um, uh, of the MEV that is leaked to current block proposers today comes from lever and these la- and this latency arb, and it's a potential centralization vector for the for the whole chain. And I think we trying to plug this hole and capture it for users, it's uh, for DEX users. It's good for users. It's but it's also really good, as Alex said, for the long term future of the protocol, because I think actually it's not in anyone's interest for um, for this to destabilize the chain. And so I think it is really important to to try to capture this and and make it as efficient as possible so that you don't end up with these unhealthy incentives uh, kind of leaking into the core of the protocol. Really well said, guys. I think that that's a great place to end it. And Alex and Jason, thank you both so much for coming on and helping Dan and I kick this season off. If, if folks want to find out more about you guys, follow you or the work you do, what's the best way to do that? People can essentially follow my Twitter account. It's um, Jason underscore of underscore CS. So Jason of CS with, with underscores. And they can, of course, follow my, my archive for the academic papers that um, we're going to release with my collaborators. My academic field is quite far from uh, DeFi, so I I will not advertise that, but I do have a Twitter account where I post some stuff. It's uh, 0x94305. So. That would be the way. Thank you for the invitation, Michael. Oh, of course. And we will link in case uh, in case anyone didn't get those right off the cuff. We're going to link those in the show notes. And guys, I highly recommend that you follow both Jason and Alex. There's a lot of alpha and very very um, very thoughtful content that comes out of both of your your accounts. If I can plug you there. So, guys, thank you so much again for just taking the time to do this. This was a ton of ton of fun. All right, Dan. What an episode there. That was that. What a treat to get those two, two on real this. heavy hitters on there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was great. Ton of fun. And there's a lot to dig into. I actually want to go in reverse order in terms of takeaway here. And that last question that we asked of why is LVR important? But we got a lot of good responses there. And one of the points that I, I just want to underscore and highlight, because I like to push back on this when, whenever I possibly can. But th- this idea that speculation and more trading volume is, is a bad thing, and that's not really real. I would just wholeheartedly push back on that. Because mm-hmm. There, I think one of the takeaways that I've actually had of, of previous seasons of Bell Curve is that speculation actually provides sort of the building blocks of financial alchemy that enable very useful products. So for instance, if there wasn't a deep and liquid market for interest rate derivatives, you couldn't have something like the 30-year fixed rate mortgage in the US. So I understand the temptation to say, oh, this is just trading. This is just speculation. There's a lot of that that happens in traditional capital markets and Wall Street and things like that, but it actually feeds into better, bigger products. And I think that mission that you outlined of getting bringing trading volume on chain 
is a very noble one and people shouldn't just thumb their nose at it. So I just want to highlight that. at the Absolutely. End. Yeah. And I think on a, on a micro level, this is something we've talked about. I think um, this is true of, for example, minor extractable value, which in the, you know, and, and the existence of arbitrage is who take advantage of it, which in the short run means, you know, that, that maybe uh, again, people, people making money off of, off of these like risk free trades. And I think you, you want there to be based on efficient arbitrage and in equilibrium, ultimately their, their profit is zero if actually the system is working correctly. Um, but you actually need, you do need some, some initial profit to basically kick that off. And then on a macro level, I think this is important for crypto in general. I think uh, my, my colleague, Matt Huang, uh, just published a piece called The Casino on Mars about the general, yeah. uh, among other things, the dynamic where um, speculation often does drive uh, a lot of infrastructure build out and, and growth into, into new areas that can ultimately bootstrap a new, better system. And I think that that is important for, for crypto when thinking about uh, this on the, on the macro scale for what it means for crypto's evolution. It seems like a very old type of business that Warren Buffett would get involved in and famously has gotten involved in, but there's the old analogy of the, the railroad lines, right? That there was a huge boom in speculation around railroads. People came in and funded huge amounts of infrastructure, which was these rail lines that uh, that led cross country. There was a lot of money lost, but it, it paved the way for a booming railroad industry eventually. W one point that I wanted to underscore, because we initially almost made it a theme of the season, but you, you brought up a really interesting point that I hadn't thought here, which was how can we move trading activity on chain and what does how does that impact LVR? Like I, I had one of these naive thoughts, um, or I can never really tell how naive it is when I was just learning about LVR, which is hey, if we didn't have this alternative trading venue in the form of centralized exchanges, but really Binance, a lot of this LVR problem would just go away. So I thought the point that you brought up about LVR on very popular trading pairs versus very unpopular trading pairs where price discovery is actually happening on chain, that's a very different conversation. So I just want to highlight that again for people to go back and listen to. And the, the question I have for you, ultimately, I'm sure you probably thought of this, how can we bring price discovery even for like the USDC Bitcoin pair or something like that on chain instead of on a centralized exchange? Like what's the, the through line to that future? Yeah, it's, it's a deep question. And I think there's two ways that we're, that, that it's is sort of happening. One of it is just by, by reducing lever on these, on these, uh, uh, you know, short tail pairs like, like ETH USD. Um, and I think the more we can reduce lever, the more, volume you end up actually having, um, uh, the, more, the more liquidity you can get on, on chain and therefore the more volume you ultimately get on chain. And then we try to shift the primary market um, happily on chain. And I think we, you've done some work that uh, it's, it seems like um, uh, already, at, le at least at certain times, liquidity on, on chain has been greater than on Binance, or at least liquidity visible on the book. Um, and I think the, uh, you know, but I think that, that doesn't, because of latency, because of other, of, uh, other factors, that doesn't necessarily mean that price discovery is happening um, on chain. And I think the more we can actually move it for those, the more these DEXs improve, um, the more we will actually potentially be able to move it more on chain. Um, and then I think uh, on the flip side, we do, we do see a lot of innovation in terms of, uh, this, of this long tail where price discovery is already happening on chain. But I think there you still do have MEV, you still do have, and I think it's a, it's a deep and subtle question, but you do have some kinds of, of lever. It's maybe just harder to measure. And so I think figuring out how to reduce the um, the lever and the uh, or the, the the mev on those uh, on those and that may involve like getting smarter about how to measure it. I think you know you still have you still have the possibility of losing money to an informed trader, and it just becomes a little bit maybe harder again to measure in this in this short term way. Um, but I think if we improve both of those, then hopefully we can start to see some of those longer tail um, assets becoming a little more having better price discovery 
um, you know, things that are happening where the risk activity is still happening on chain for them. And then conversely, where we can have the assets where high is happening off chain, see if we can move it on. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you some questions that are going to start to lead into next week's episode. I want to underscore again, and it's a pity we had limited time with, with Alex and Jason, but this is something that we talked about uh, offline as well. I want to underscore the importance of latency in price discovery. And I want to ask you just kind of a candid question about Ethereum's block time. So latency is an extremely important variable when it comes to price discovery. And I guess my question for you is, can we ever get price discovery with a 12 second block time? And like, how do you think about the role of latency within price discovery? So I think we do, we do see price discovery um, on chain and longer tail tokens with the 12 second block time. Ultimately, you know, if those, if those tokens end up getting a lot of volume and becoming major tokens, you will start to see people um, basically, you know, creating, doing more off chain volume, doing more RFQ, doing maybe listing it on centralized exchanges, getting more volume there. And so I do think that's a, that's a potential uh, a threat essentially to the stability of that, of that as a market structure. So I do think in some ways trying to, um, uh, you know, in the, in the naive way now, like, uh, just having no, or, you know, ordinary on-chain, you know, AMM um, markets, you might, yeah, you you may it may be hard to, to prevent price discovery from happening off-chain. I think there are interesting mechanisms possibly for saying we actually don't need price discovery faster than that. And I think batch auctions are one are one such where it actually is. It's not entirely clear to me that there's a lot of social value in having price discovery in a lot of these assets that is shorter than twelve seconds. Um, and I think. There's possibly possibly a lot of um, uh, costs to having really fast price discovery and this high frequency trading arms race um, that we see. And I'm not sure 12 seconds is necessarily the right period, but it seems clear that you know nobody really naturally needs price discovery within a second. It just kind of uh, uh, happens, or within 100 milliseconds, you know, down to the nanosecond. No one really needs that um, for you know um, any like practical real world thing. It just it's a consequence of just these these. Um, uh, market forces that causes it to happen. And so trying to figure out, is there a way to do something more like a batch auction where we can have slower price discovery? Um, my, you know, I think, I think without, without losing to competitors who, who do it faster, I think is a really important open problem. Man, I want to believe that so badly because I think anyone who's spent, you know, even uh, any amount of time looking at high frequency trading has kind of zoned out for a second and asked themselves, what are we really doing here? Like, what social good is this providing? And I think that just like anything else, there's sort of a curve, right? Where you do want markets to be deep and liquid. And actually, there are a lot of good things that come from that. But what's the difference between price discovery on a one second time frame versus 500 milliseconds versus 10 milliseconds? I, it's, it's, I think it, hard, it gets, I think you probably see less and less. And one thing that we didn't discuss actually was something cool to check out. But the, the third bucket that we talked about with Alec from Alex about just different buckets of information to be aware of where your flow is coming from. So one thing that I think is starting to happen on Balancer is that that the flow that's coming from CowSwap is actually getting better prices because in general, right, if you're a trader that's placing trades on CowSwap, you're comfortable waiting for a little bit, which means you're probably not one of these high frequency trader uh, toxic order flow people. And Balancer has essentially priced that and said, okay, there's a high likelihood that people who are trading here at retail and we're actually going to give them a better price. So Something kind of cool to look out at. One thing that I thought about with LVR, and I know we're in our final minutes here, is this is a very sophisticated approach to profitability for an LP. So I would just go out on a limb and say LVR is only relevant really for professional or institutional market makers. I just can't see a retail person, first of all, even grokking this concept. 
But second of all, there's no way that they can really measure this in any sort of consistent way. So does the prevalence of LVR presuppose a more sophisticated professional class of active LP? Or what do you think about that idea? I don't think so. In that I think ultimately what it reflects is something is something very real, which is um, which is a it's a real opportunity cost and a possible loss in expectation for for retail liquidity providers. Um, and I think it, it does so it measures it in a more reliable way um, and, and a clearer way and a more a more in some senses objective way than um, uh, than impermanent loss or or someone just looking at their realized PL over a period. It's very hard. You know, when you think about for for a um, a retail liquidity provider, for example, if they're looking at just whether they made made or lost money, it's sort of like a like a poker player, um, you know, looking at just oh, d- did I play good well tonight? And they look at just whether they won or lost money on their um, uh, uh, on the hands they played um, or, or for the for the whole night. And they said, oh, like I lost money, so I must have made some mistake, right? And that would be a mistake if you if you've got like a short term. Um, uh, a short time horizon because you just you know, there's a lot of luck or a lot of just you know how things worked out that could have been different. You could have played perfect poker but still lost lost some money. And I think similarly this concept for even amateur poker players, I think it's important to figure out like how well did you play the cards that you were dealt. And I think that's roughly what what Lever is trying to measure. I, I agree with you. I think the question that I was really trying to get at is will they do that? I, I know that is the right thing to do, but will they? In the long run, I think. I think so. And in the long run, I think there's a lot of competitive reasons why, um, yeah, why, why I think like they should care about it and they should, and they will, they will tend towards solutions that do it. And this is, this is separate from, again, whether ultimately, like I think liquidity fighters are people who are, who are comfortable with basically the, the Delta risks that they're taking there. Right. That's why they're doing the rebalancing portfolio. I think they, they sort of want that that's more in their preference set, but then everything else is kind of the, um, it's like, Versus, you know, how well are you doing versus compared to that? And I think it's, I think it's something that in theory could actually be very legible to them or made legible. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, guys, just to give you a, a little bit of a preview of next week's episode, the the reason we talked about designing sort of a gas constrained environment is we're going to have a central limit order book builder from Solana and someone who's a little bit more on the AMM side from Ethereum. So we're going to get have a very fun discussion about what the differences are of designing kind of with uh, gas costs and sort of a gas constrained environment on ETH. ETH mainnet versus uh, an environment like Solana, where that's not so much of a cost. And then we're going to talk about sort of the spectrum of AMMs and central limit order books and how there's a little bit maybe of a, a convergence that's happening there as well. But Dan, this was a ton of fun and I will see you next week. Bye.